0: They talk about how much it, you know, it influenced them and what a great time it was. And and uh, that's really satisfying for me to to know that, you know, I, I was able to be a part of people's happy memories. It was funny. We did a commercial for uh, Rice Krispies, one of our sponsors. Chuck, my drum teacher, wasn't there for that. So I thought, oh, boy, here we go. The test now. Can I actually do this? And they, I did this little drum thing, and I was like, wow, this is cool. I actually can do this. Here we are 50 years later, and you're still talking to me.
1: <laughs> the David Cassidy Connections with Louise Poynton. Cherish the legacy. Hello, everyone, and a very warm welcome wherever you are listening. My guest today has been a science teacher, an award-winning winemaker, a race-winning race car driver, and these days competes in historic Formula Ford single-seaters. His passport to fame came with the Partridge family, joining the cast for the second series. He recently got his long-awaited British passport thanks to his family ancestry. His great-great-great grandfather was Charles Dickens, regarded as the greatest novelist of the Victorian era, writing A Christmas Carol, Oliver Twist and Great Expectations. His grandfather was Alan Napier, who played Alfred, the faithful butler in the Batman television series. His mother, actress Jennifer Rain, father Peter Forster, a renowned director, television and film actor, and his stepfather Whit Bissell, a character actor. But the world knows Brian Forster best as Chris Partridge, the youngest boy in the Partridge family and the group's drummer. On September 25, the Partridge family will be 50 years old, having first aired on ABC that day in 1970. In our conversation, Brian reflects on his acting years working on the Partridge family, what he learnt from his co-stars David Cassidy and Shirley Jones, talks about his passion for motor racing, and why he and his wife might move to the United Kingdom. I suppose it may be obvious from your family background, from their stage and television careers, that that would be the path that you would take. But with your interest in cars, did you ever consider a career maybe as a race car driver at the very top level?
0: Oh, absolutely. I'm, I, uh, in my amateur racing, I mean, I purposely picked a path that would hopefully lead to a pro career and I did very well on my amateur career, but I was spending money and I just, I, you know, I didn't have a rich dad to sponsor me. And so I did what I could and I did very well but the next step would have been 10 times as much money, and I didn't have it.
1: Where did the interest start?
0: Well, the car interest started extremely early. I mean, I used to drive down the road with my mom and be able to look at every car and know what make and model it was, which my mom didn't understand at all. But uh, early on, it, and then of course, when I got my driver's license, then uh, you know immediately I was you know messing around and racing a little bit on the Mulholland Drive in the Hollywood Hills and luckily I figured out that that wasn't too smart and uh, so really the the legal official part started when I was 20 I guess.
1: For anyone listening who isn't familiar with what Mulholland Drive is can you explain just how dangerous that mile and a half stretch of road
0: is? Well it's funny because Mulholland Drive is featured in so many TV shows and movies. You know the classic scene of the couple necking up a, up on the road, overlooking the city lights. That's Mulholland Drive, mm-hmm. um, and Mulholland Drive stretches for thirty, forty miles. So it ends up up in out in the the on the coast around Malibu. Mm-hmm. But the part that we raced on was only a couple of miles long, and it's the only stretch that had no driveways or cross streets. But if you went, so it seems safe. But if you went over the side uh your car many cars there's dead man's curve which is featured in the dan jan and dean song there's i hiked down there one day hiking is maybe not the right word and there's still cars down there from who knows when. So luckily, I uh, I wasn't one of them.
1: What is the appeal of racing for you?
0: You know, it's it's hard to explain, but it's just something I'm very good at. And I like It's I've been good at other things in my life, but you don't get a trophy necessarily at the end of the day. And I like having the the recognition that I'm actually good at something. And I'm very good at it, really. I mean, I think you know, I try to be modest, but I have proven it that, that I can actually do it. But I think and a big part of this is that from the time of the Partridge family, all I ever heard was, you know, you're the guy in the Partridge family, you're the guy in the Partridge family. Well, including in my racing. Well, one day at the racetrack, somebody referred to me as the guy that won the race you know, not the guy that's on the Partridge family. And I. that was a big moment for me. It was nice to finally have something besides the Partridge family to be known for.
1: Do you remember your first race win?
0: Yeah, actually I can. I was uh, I was racing in a class called Sports Renault, a closed wheel car with a Renault engine. And I'd been kind of moving my way up toward the front. And this other guy and I had been kind of battling and I made a pass on him, kind of bumped into him and spun him out. And I felt so guilty that I had done that. And I actually slowed down waiting for him to catch up and I was going to let him back by, but he never came back. So I won. And I was like, oh, man, that was an empty win. But then it was a double race weekend. And the next week, the next day, I beat him fair and square uh, and led from start to finish. So I'm like, OK, good. I, I did deserve it.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Where, where was that race?
0: That was at Laguna Seca.
1: Good track. Is that one of your favorites? I suppose it
0: is when you win there. Well, that helps, yeah. Yes, I love Laguna Seca. Uh, You know, the setting, if nothing else, you know, close to Monterey. and, And it's such a legendary track, too. It's been there for so long. The Bell Race on the same track is... In all the greats.
1: You now race in historic Formula Ford?
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I have a 1977 Taiga built in England. i um, racing in Formula Ford uh, vintage, and we have really good fields, and we're having a lot of fun. This car that I have has been, was sitting in my garage for 10 years, and at my wife's encouragement, I finally, I was going to sell it. I thought, if I'm not going to use it, I might as well get rid of it. So, I resurrected it, and uh needless to say, there were some issues throughout the year and finally, it's a horrible looking car, although that's gonna change but uh I ironed out most of the problems, and yeah, I was running up front
1: but your family supportive of your racing?
0: No, not at all. I assume we're talking about my mom and dad, my mom
1: yes. yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, my mom just never oh she hated it, she saw one of my races in atlanta when i went to the runoffs and she played you know i'd drive by and my friend was with her and goes oh there he goes and she'd point off in the opposite direction where she just had no no interest whatsoever now my dad one of these i don't know if you can see it but there's a little trophy in there and that has my dad's name on it now my dad i think did a commercial i don't know I'd heard rumors that he had raced a time trial or something like that, but um, I think this thing actually came from a commercial or something. I don't think he actually won anything.
1: It wasn't a racing career that you carved out. It was an acting career. Were you aware of the Partridge family before you got the part?
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, it was the number one show the year before I was on it, and I remember being in elementary school, and we danced around to I Think I Love You, And, uh, you know, little did I know I'd be on it. And when I did get the part, I was so excited, it was ridiculous. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, I knew all about it. My mom started me in commercials when I was seven, um, primarily to get money to go to college because that was her, she was determined I'd go to college, but she couldn't afford it. Um, And I did very well because I was a pretty cute kid. And uh, along the way, I did Brady Bunch once and Family Fair once. Well, I did a, a safety film called The Talking Car. One of those films they show you in elementary school about how to cross the street safely. And um, they used that as my audition reel, essentially. They had heard about me, the Partridge family people that is, and they asked to see that film. And then I interviewed, I was the only one, there wasn't a mass cattle call of kids. And they actually interviewed my mom as well, because since the mom has to be there, as a guardian the whole time they wanted to make sure she was compatible as well and there you go that's how it came about
1: and you say you were beyond excited
0: oh yeah i was very very excited yeah i ran around the neighborhood screaming and all my friends and uh you know i don't i think they were pretty excited too but i think in the end they were probably like okay enough enough calm down
1: Have you got any recollections of your first day on on the set?
0: Well, not the first day on the set, but the first photo shoot. There's a bunch of photographs. If you see a photograph with me wearing a blue striped shirt, well, it's blue primarily with white stripes. Mm -hmm. That was my personal shirt. And my mom always used that for my auditions, and she called it my lucky shirt because I usually got the part. And so that we did all kinds of different poses of, this that and the other thing and um there was one where we have our faces sticking through a picture frame as if we're in the picture. And I was right underneath Susan Day, whose legs were literally spread out for my shoulders because I'm lying on the floor and she's standing above me. And uh that was uh kinda kinda interesting. So I definitely remember that. And I remember everybody being really nice to me. I mean they all knew each other, obviously. Yeah. And here I come yeah. in the new guy, but they're all very nice and gracious to me. So
1: I mean, people have probably mentioned this to you before, but when you came into the series, no one really noticed that Chris had changed.
0: Yeah, I find that very strange. But uh, I guess that shows you what a minor character Chris Partridge was—that they didn't even know you know his hair had changed. Maybe they just figured it was Hollywood. It's a California state law that children <laughs> doing show business have to do uh, three hours of. I think it was three. Oh my God, it's fifty years ago, so three hours of schooling a day and we had a tutor on set who would who would do that and then during the summer we uh we didn't have to do school obviously so trying to keep us entertained when we're not filming could be interesting okay so when I first got on the show I was very excited as I've said and after a year or so when I could not go anywhere restaurant store whatever without being pointed at and stared at and you know, people whispering, and you know, it, it did get old after a while for that. But the actual work and being on the set and and all that was great.
1: Did you become like an extended family?
0: Somewhat. I mean, it. I think people assume that we're together even when we're off the set. You know, that over the weekends we're, you know, partying together or whatever. But you know, playing together in the case of little kids, but. No, pretty much when the week was over, we're back to doing our own thing and then back on Monday. So, but in the sense that, you know, we were an extended family. Yeah, there were spats now and then or disagreements and just like any family would have. But we also shared, obviously, a lot of good times as well.
1: What are your fondest memories?
0: There's a whole lot. I mean, the, the people I worked with, and I don't just mean the actors. I mean, uh, you know, the lighting guy and the camera guy and the, the grip guy, you know, those are you know, I think they purposely hired crew that were good with children. Um, all of us kids, you know, we could probably be a little bit of brats, and uh, but the crew was very patient with us. So the memories of the people were good, uh, but also the places that we traveled. I mean, we got to do, you know, go to Kings Island Amusement Park, and we got to go to Marineland, and we got to do the cruise ship. I mean, those are really fun times then. That was getting away from the studio. One of the things they learned the first year with uh, Jeremy who didn't have any drum lessons is that, you know, the kid behind the drums has got to at least look like he knows what he's doing. So one of the first things they did um, after I got the show was they uh, gave me a set of drums to practice at home. And I started working with the teacher to learn some of the basics about drumming. And then he and I, for every song would sit down together with the record and, and uh, basically go over what the, the, what it was going to be and then during this filming he'd stand on a big ladder and air drum what i was supposed to be doing so if i look like i'm looking off camera staring into space that's why so they would give us the the record for that you know songs and usually there it wasn't just one record one song on one record it was a series of songs and they'd say okay this week we're doing uh you know i could feel your heartbeat or whatever and then we'd go over it and uh Spend some time learning it beforehand.
1: Did you actually enjoy drumming?
0: Yeah, I did. I uh, It was funny. We did a commercial for uh, Rice Krispies, one of our sponsors. Chuck, my drum teacher, wasn't there for that. So I thought, oh boy, here we go. The test now, can I actually do this? And they, I did this little drum thing, and I was like, wow, this is cool. I actually can do this. Your drumming certainly
1: got better as the series went on.
0: Yeah, it's pretty funny, because in the beginning, you would hear the drum go doo, doo 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 and then you'd see me, you know, behind, you know. I'm like, I knew it was there, I just didn't know when. Mm-hmm. And then there was a time where maybe I got ahead of what I was supposed to be doing. But, yeah, it it got better.
1: Did you get encouragement from other members of the, the crew, Shirley and David and Danny, etc.? Uh,
0: no, not really. <laughs> Actually, it was funny because David, so David is a real musician. And, you know, here I am crashing away on cymbals. And even though the loudspeaker is on really loud, you're going to hear me. So he insisted that they put tape on the bottom of the cymbals and pads on top of the drums, so that he wouldn't have to hear me beating away at something that wasn't right. I mean, David was a nice guy. Don't get me wrong. I mean, he actually, at one point, I expressed an interest in singing. So he kind of gave me a little quasi, you know, singing lesson. Um, it's, you know, it's not that he disapproved of me or anything. It's just, I understand. He was, he's a musician. He knows what's going on. He doesn't need to hear you know the drum that's totally off the beat so you know i get it
1: the music is as fresh today as it was back then
0: yeah well i'll tell you what's funny is that one of my classmates in high school his brother was tommy tedesco i'm sorry his dad was tommy tedesco in the wrecking crew and he made a film called The Wrecking Crew. And he invited me for the showing and and all that. And so Hal Blaine, who was the drummer that I'm actually, you know, who's on the records. So I watched this and The Wrecking Crew was an amazing group of musicians and everybody, the singers, I mean, they were top-notch people. Um, The music style was not my style. I think I was more along David Cassidy's style. I wanted to, you know, listen to Led Zeppelin and, jimi hendrix and the who and all that but so style wise not my thing but uh, but definitely well done music
1: are you proud to have been a part of that
0: yeah absolutely i uh um you know here we are 50 years later and you're still talking to me <laughs> and <laughs> people people are interested and uh people have great memories when i do autograph shows you know, and people come up to me all day long, you know, big smiles on their faces saying how much, you know, how much it meant to them and all that. It's, it's really, it's cool to be a part of history like that.
1: What made the Partridge families so popular? Was it the storylines that they addressed faced up to moral issues that were being faced in everyday life? And as a family, everyone came up with solutions to problems. And, you know, did people perhaps think, well, if the Partridge family can cope, I I can cope. What, what was the appeal?
0: Well, that's funny because you just touched on all the things I would have said. <laughs> Which... <laughs>
1: okay. Go, go, go. Okay.
0: <laughs> no, it's true. I mean, the show was kind of uh, revolutionary. I mean, so you had the Brady Bunch and they had the divorced family or whatever, but it was a little too everything was perfect and all that Partridge family. So here you have a single mom raising kids um, and touring around in the band with mom, you know, that, I think that was a big part of its appeal. And yeah, well, like you're saying the dealing with the modern issues of the day with, you know, with Lori talking about women's lib and women's rights and, you know, the little battles that were on between her and Keith about that. And then, you know, you combine that with this cool psychedelic bus and, uh, the music, of course, and it was it was a formula that was re- that really worked. Let's
1: look back at some of those episodes. What was your favorite?
0: Well, my favorite episode is anything where I got to say more than "Here comes Keith." <laughs> um, so obviously, the one where Suzanne and I, sorry, uh, Tracy and I ran away from home, and we actually got to have some fun there, and uh, that was a good one. And and when Danny and I. St- Keith's hair and other things you know that was another good one
1: i just wondered if that yeah. was an amusing episode to film
0: an amusing episode to film
1: there always seemed to be such fun uh amongst yeah. the cast that you know when you and danny are creeping in into his room and the scissors are there and you're chopping away his hair you can just imagine him perhaps lying there trying not to laugh
0: yeah yeah, no, that's funny. That That's funny you should mention that scene because I remember that well, you know, first of all, the put it on makeup, you know, so we have black, blackface or, you know, so we, you know, the little cap. So we're stealthy and all that. And then to, you know, and usually the set is really brightly lit for obvious reasons. Well, here it's just, it's supposed to be nighttime. So it's very dark. And it was, it felt really like we we're actually doing that very thing. It, it was fun.
1: You mentioned the one where you and Tracy run away from home. You liked that one. What about the uh, Doctor Jekyll and Mister Partridge?
0: Yeah, that was um, I think a little over my head at the time. I didn't quite understand why that was a big deal, but mm. uh, but I I appreciated it, and it was and it was nice to be able to work with David on a more personal level because we are working with him the whole time and. You know, I think he was trying to convey the whole subject matter in a way that we would get. And he worked with us. The thing I remember about that scene the most, or that episode, is being in the park where he takes us to the classical music concert and we're dressed up in a suit and tie and all that. suit and tie to me then was misery anyway. Plus it was a hundred degree smoggy day in Burbank. And I'm just going, get this scene over. I This is miserable. <laughs> but, you know, we did it.
1: What about the final scene where you find him sitting in the garage all alone and that was a very cruel thing to do. I was only trying to be good to them and helping them.
0: You know, it's funny because I do remember that scene as being pretty true to form that I, I, I think he did a – he was a very good actor and I think he – portrayed the image of you know you guys really hurt me and all this stuff and i remember actually kind of feeling that we actually had and so it it, it was pretty poignant but
1: did you ever learn beethoven's fifth symphony on the drums
0: (laughs) um yeah there's there's one beat boom there we go (laughs) got that part. got that
1: what about the other guest stars who came on the show did you have much to do do with them? Any engagements with some of the the bigger names from films and stage?
0: Well, that was another bonus for the working on the Partridge family because by then, I mean, we had people at, I don't know if they nest like Artie Johnson, I always admired him from laughing and so I get to work with him and um I think, you know, of course work Margaret Hamilton, you know, Wicked Witch of the West, um, she was wonderful and my mom was was wonderful and got her to autograph photos to me and she didn't just get any of them she got original uh wizard of oz pictures and she um captioned them things like you know like her pointing out the window and the flying monkeys saying go get brian and bring him back to me you know signed www i mean i i still i have those up on my wall i mean that she was wonderful so yeah who else i mean People that I knew, Howard Cosell, I mean, who who would have known? Not that he was somebody that I was like, oh, boy, you know, I emulated him. But, you know, I knew he was somebody. And here he is on our show. So we got, you know, Rob Reiner, who went on to amazing things, uh, you know, so got to meet him and work with him. So yeah, we, it was all kinds of people.
1: Can you describe what it was like working with everyone?
0: Well, one of my favorites was Dave Madden. Dave was just absolutely hysterical. And when things got crazy or, you know, if we all got tired or like, God, do we have to do this again? We could always count on Dave to make us laugh. Uh, Shirley also, Shirley was such a trooper that, you know, being in the business as long as she had, she kind of knew what was coming, but she was full of laughter and and stuff and david had his moments of spontaneity and laughter danny was always (laughs) danny Mm -hmm. um you know kind of okay what kind of trouble is he going to get into this time or uh what line is he going to forget this time we got along fine most of the time so susan day you know we uh i didn't get to work with her a whole lot but uh you know she was nice you know overall nobody there was no bad apples we all got along like i said we had our moments of hilarity, we had our moments of frustration, but in the end we stuck together and made it work.
1: When it all came to an end, did you keep in touch?
0: You know, I had missed out on a lot of things. My friends are going off to play Little League, and they're going surfing, and they're doing all this stuff, and I had to go to work. And so for me, when the show ended, I was so excited to go back to school, go back to normal school, and see my friends again, and you know and all that it was a little bit of a time warp in a way because all of a sudden i've jumped in, i popped into the middle of uh what would that be eighth grade or something and you know all of a sudden i'm i'm like the alien but uh i was glad to be back in normal life um people often think that we became you know that we just stayed in touch the whole time and you know we all went our own separate ways and my analogy is always like okay well you worked with so-and-so 20 years ago, 30 years ago, well, now 50 years ago. How many people of those are you actually friends with or actually in touch with? They, yeah, yeah, okay. I mean, I'm not trying to be a downer. I'm just, that's kind of the reality. Just life moves on. But since we started doing the autograph shows, which has been, wow, 15, 20 years now, I guess. So Suzanne and I were, you know, doing them together. So I was keeping in touch with her. Surely I'd, see once in a while in fact one of the autograph shows i was in la and she said well why don't you stay at our house i'm like oh come on really and i did one night and it was fascinating uh, to actually stay and she just like a real mom i'm sitting on the couch and out she comes in her bathrobe with oh you must be hungry and a little tv tray of something and you know that was fun i like that
1: she had an Oscar, as you know, and she was so so well known for uh, Oklahoma and Carousel. Yet most people remember her as Shirley Partridge. Is that an indication of the impact that television has?
0: Yeah, it's funny how actors will often become more famous for their roles on TV. I mean, just the other day, I saw Yvonne Carlo in a movie. You know, she was uh, Lily Munster, and that's what she's known for. But she had an amazing career before that. But nobody ever thinks of that. Mm-hmm. Um, my, gran- my grandfather, I mean, he did film and television and stage. And then he became the butler Alfred on Batman. And that's what he's known for. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think TV just almost seems to have a bigger impact than movies, too. <laughs> it's amazing to me that, um, you know, people will, even though I had such a minor role, that people will, I'll run into somebody out in the store or something and they'll look at me and they go hey did you go out with my sister or did you go to such and such high school they recognized me but they don't know where from Mm. and then every once in a while get somebody just right away just goes you were the guy in the partridge family like wow okay here's somebody that uh, i I don't know what to say but (laughs) yeah (laughs) that doesn't happen i mean i'm known in the racing community and that's important to me but uh I understand. When I'm out, I have that occasion, like I just mentioned, out in the store. Most of the time, I'm pretty nice about it. And, you know, sometimes I just, I'm not in the mood. I don't want to talk about it. But, you know, I try and remember that the show meant a lot to people and I don't want to burst their bubble. Because I came into the show when it was already popular, I had a clue about, you know, just how popular it was. And yeah, to see these people waiting outside the, the gate every day, you know, it was, I don't think I was, too surprised by it. Um, It was, uh, you know, it was kind of an affirmation, really, that, you know, because we're in the studio all day long, and who knows, you know, what it's being received like at the other end. But uh, between the magazines and the articles and people waiting outside, yeah, I think I pretty much had an idea.
1: Did you spend any considerable time with David himself? Did he ever act like an older brother when filming was over?
0: Well, as I mentioned, he um, gave me singing lessons one time, or singing lesson anyway, took the time to do that for me. One of the funny stories about David is uh, one year for Christmas, uh, he gave gifts to everybody. Now, he's not the one who purchased them. I mean, somebody else did because he's too busy touring. So what did I get along with the other kids? A bottle of scotch. So my mom... On Monday morning, went to David and said, "Uh, David, do you know what you gave the kids for Christmas? And all of a sudden he went, oh, no, I am sorry. So he personally went out and got a little Swiss Army knife for me, which is a much more appropriate gift for a 13-year-old boy. And um, I had it for a long time. It finally disappeared. But um, that was, you know, definitely a personal moment with David. Um, you know, you mentioned the scene or the episode where he, you know, wanted us to be more upright kids and how he wanted to look after us and all that. And uh, so got a chance to work with him more uh, intimately than usual. So no, he was a very gracious human being. I liked him. He was, uh, I, I look at it now and, you know, having read the books and everything, it's like, how did he do it? Be off on weekends, touring, come back on Monday, do it. And then the recording studio at night. I don't know how he did it.
1: There were often many scenes where not only yourself, but other members of, of the cast would be looking at him in almost complete admiration. I mean, was hmm. that just a natural reaction?
0: No, I think I think he was uh, respected and admired by us as well. I mean, you know, it, you, there's only so much emotion you can fake, you know, especially when you're little kids. You don't know how to act, really, not to the point of a jack lemon or something. I think when we'd give him those looks, it, you know, it was. You got to remember too, is that we'd been together. You know, when that particular scene was done, we may have been working all day long. We're tired, and you know, we looked up to those that kept us going like Shirley and David I mean David you know yeah he there were many scenes where it, especially the the tag the last scene of a show was supposed to be very corny and he'd purposely bowl his chair over like exaggerating the laughter and the hilarity which became hilarious because it, this was so silly and he just made it more so so it just it helped you know it helped with that bonding
1: Did you learn anything from him that's been useful in your
0: life? Uh, You know, I just maybe the work ethic, which also got from Shirley. But the fact that he could do what he did day after day and just continue to be such a professional. um, I think I can be pretty determined in my work life as well. And like I'm rebuilding my race car right now. And I've, you know, it's taken a long time and a lot of detail. But you just got to plug away and plug away and just keep at it. And you know, yeah, there are times when I quit and I've had it, but you got to just, dig, you know, dig deep and keep going. And I think that's kind of, you know, one of those things that I might have learned from him.
1: And from Shirley?
0: Oh, same thing. I mean, talk about a work ethic. I mean, but also Shirley's sense of humor and her happy demeanor. I mean, the positivity, you know, of, you know I don't think I don't think I ever saw her mad or negative. So that's a good role model right there. Yeah, she's actually somebody that I, although I'm a little bit guilty, I haven't talked to her in a while, but uh, um, I I have kept in touch with her, you know, maybe once a year or something, and she's still just as sweet as she was. She'd go, hi, how are you? How's how's your wife? You know, she's, you know, very sweet and gracious.
1: When you finished with the Partridge family and you went back to a normal life, where did your career take you? Because I think you did some... uh, Local theater?
0: Right after the show, I wanted to return to normal life. So that meant going to school. It meant surfing. It meant, you know, doing things that I would do as a 16 year old, um, racing mall. And, you know, I just, I wanted it so it was later on that I thought, you know, I I do love this business. I was born in it. I'd like to do so, And I tried the theater, but that was not until I was 31, I think. And I was a little scared because when you do TV, you know, if you miss a line, you just start over. Well, live theater, it's no, it's live. You don't, you just go. Uh, What I'd learned from that though, was having a live audience is wonderful. I mean, I did a play where my line was one of the first to have some comedy in it. And I'd be backstage and I'd go, oh, man, we got a dead crowd. Well, let's see what I can do. And I'd go out there and I'd deliver that line and get the crowd going. And, but you don't get that in TV. I mean, because, you know, the crew is has to stay quiet. They can't react. You
1: like that interaction, that feedback from your audience.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the theater I've done, it's been small. Small theatres, and there's one theatre where I come down the aisle from behind the audience, and to walk right by them and be right there is is really fun.
1: Didn't you go into wine production as well at some point?
0: After my business failed, my racing business, I had a racing that didn't do well. A friend of mine was working at a winery and said, well, you know, you're an actor and you like wine. You could be a tour guide. You could do work in the tasting room. I thought, all right, I'll give it a try. And again, the the theatrical part of me came out and I was having fun. I used to sell a lot of wine, mostly partially because I was entertaining. But then the scientist part of me wanted to learn how to make wine. So I I worked in production as well to learn how it was made and and all that and ended up making my own wine so that that was fun i thought about being a professional winemaker but as one of the winemakers pointed out to me he said you know you're kind of an extrovert and if you're a winemaker you spend a lot of time by yourself in the lab in the, it's like i don't know if this is for you and i think he was right was your wine good yeah my first one i've made wine three times and they've won Let's see, I won a silver medal the first round and two bronzes, I think. The first wine I made, I only made two cases of. And my friend owned a restaurant and I brought it down for his opening. And his chef said, oh, I want to buy that wine. How much do you have? And I said, uh, uh, it's only for me. I can't sell. And he goes, this is some of the best wine I've ever had. And I'm like, all right.
1: <laughs> wow. Was it red, white, rosé?
0: Oh, I'll, I've only done reds. That was oh, that was uh, that was my zin. So I've made a cab Cabernet Sauvignon and two zins, zinfandel.
1: Well, you live in wine country, don't you?
0: Yes, we do. We're oh, sir, okay. we've got a vineyard right next door. In fact, two days ago, the the uh, owner was picking his grapes, so uh, got to wake up to the sound of tractors and and uh, machinery. Yeah, there's so much to it. I uh, mm. I love learning new things, and you know, I took up sailing quite a while ago. Um, well, I really started sailing when I was 12, but seriously, when I had the racing business and to learn all the new things and the new terminology, because by then I, my racing, I don't wanna say I knew everything, but you know, I, I'd done it long enough, so been there, done that. Well, to do something different was really fun. And it was the same thing with winemaking. It's a, it's a combination of art and science. And since I have a degree in zoology and I'm an actor by nature, there you go, art and science.
1: Cuz you were a science teacher, weren't
0: you? Yeah, I dabbled in that a little bit. Yep. Yeah. yeah, I uh, was a substitute high school teacher at one point and then uh I was on my way to getting a teaching credential, but I realized the car racing bug was just too strong and that I've got to try that and if I don't do that I'll I'll be sorry and well, now we know where that went. So racing has dominated ever since.
1: So when did you first start racing?
0: Uh You mean Mulholland Drive or after that?
1: After that. Yeah. So in
0: 1983, I had a uh, Formula V and I was autocrossing and hill climbing it. But a friend of mine had crashed his car and he and I were the same size. He said, well, you can borrow my suit and helmet and you can go to driver's school. So I did. I've been, that that was it. I've been hooked on road racing ever since. I've raced all kinds of different things. Uh, In fact, oh, you can walk with me here because these are some of the cars I've driven. Oh,
1: look at that. Wow.
0: So here's a Spitfire, and uh, here's my Formula V. Wow. And this is the Sports Renault I told you about with, with my win.
1: Yeah.
0: And, uh, yeah, they're most mostly single-seaters, but, no, yeah. I'll race anything. that uh, As I often say, I'll race anything with four wheels. I don't do two wheels.
1: And you were a racing instructor as well for a number of years.
0: Yeah, I, I instructed at the uh, Bob Bondurant School uh, in the late 80s and also worked for the skip barber school um, i've done a lot of uh, private coaching and i've done uh, new car introduction ride and drives last program i did uh, was for toyota in japan i was in japan for a week oh, and awesome. uh, that was that was wonderful about 10 years ago well more than like 20 i had a client who raced a vintage formula ford and he let me drive his car once and it was that race then was it wasn't really racing it was just driving around and everybody told me you know don't don't make it look too easy it's you know it's not supposed to be that competitive and all that and i thought i don't want to race this Mm
1: -hmm. well
0: here we are now and it's we're racing as hard as we ever did only in older cars and we're all older too
1: yes yeah are you very competitive when you get behind the wheel
0: i am but i'm also I take sort of a Zen approach, which is if I could say I did my best and my best is third, then so be it. If I do my best and and I win, great. But I've won a bunch of races because I've been patient, because I've seen them another guy around me who's clearly, you know, going a little crazy and like, well, he's going to take himself out. And they usually do. I'm a thinking race driver. The whole time I'm thinking of the, the end of the race, not that particular moment. So I'm not extremely competitive.
1: But you are competitive and you like to win. Oh, yeah. If you had carved out a career as a race car driver, which formula would you have targeted?
0: Um, well, I've always loved the prototypes. Um, so anything that, you know, Le Mans or Daytona, 24 hours, something like that. Early on, yes, I had an, I love formula cars and people would always ask, well, do you want to go to the Indy 500? And I'd say, well, crashing into a wall at 200 miles an hour is not my idea of fun. So Indianapolis 500, and this is hard to say, but no, I had no interest. The road courses, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Formula One was out the question. I would never you know I never I didn't start early enough I didn't have the money uh, that wouldn't have happened so sports cars in general would have been my path
1: yes because you told me that you saw your first formula 1 race over here in England at Brands Hatch
0: that's right I was visiting my relatives in 1980 and uh there so it turned out there was a formula 1 meet at Brands Hatch and I just got interested and I thought well I'm nearby I should go see it and boy was I uh, was I impressed 1980 yep yeah yeah so Alan Jones won the championship that year but it was such a great year because um, the Renault turbos were out and they were still pretty new all the Cosworth V8s the Ferrari V12 the Alpha V12 and the Matra 12 which was still to to this day is still one of the loudest car loudest engines I think I've heard it was impressive
1: I was at Brands that day I, I remember alan jones winning that race
0: oh you were there too wow okay
1: did you ever race around brands ever have that opportunity
0: no but i'm hoping to before covid hit um so i got my british passport this year and i'm ready to travel and um i want to do a vintage formula ford race over there and brands would be wonderful just about anywhere would be fine in england i don't care but uh yeah. but brands would be wonderful. Funny story, I went to the Long Beach Grand Prix in 1981, I think it was, and Nigel Mansell was racing with uh, the Lotus team with Essex, and my buddy and I were walk, leaving the track at the end of the day, and he was a big Nigel Mansell fan. I didn't really know Nigel Mansell, which is a shame, But and we're walking along, and the next thing we know, he's walking right next to us, so my friend goes, hey, can you sign this? So he's, Oh, yeah, sure, signed it, walked away. Mm-hmm. Now, years later, I became a Nigel Mansell fan. I'm like, oh man, I missed an opportunity. The same opportunity I missed when Pink Floyd was playing the Wall Tour in London while I was there, and I um, didn't go.
1: When did you discover about your family ancestry and how far back your British links go?
0: So you are obviously referring to Charles Dickens, who is my great-great-great-grandfather, Yes. And um, I knew about that right away. I mean, this, that's on my mom's side. I grew up knowing about all this and we have some Nick Dickens memorabilia. And um, so, yeah, I knew about it the whole time. So uh, um, I think when it really accelerated, so every year there's a Christmas luncheon for the Dickens male heirs, which is held at the Georgian Vulture in central London. So I've basically went oh the first time when i was 31 or 32 i don't remember how old i was but anyway it's like wow these i i really am part of this family and now here i am on the tree and everything so so i now know that i'm number six in the uh hierarchy age-wise of uh i think it's 120 or so eligible dickens male heirs
1: how much does it mean to you to have a british passport
0: oh it It's so exciting. I mean, I remember growing up, my mom uh, talked about getting it, but I guess the rule at that time, as I understood it, is that my father had to sign off on it as well by the time I was the age of 18. Well, my mom and dad weren't getting along and it didn't happen. So um, it's something I've wanted to do for years and years. And I did some research and found out it's all based on my family, my father's heritage. And they said, yeah, you're eligible. Here's the form. Send us the stuff. And here we go. And I got my passport.
1: What did that moment
0: feel like? Uh, it was had a lot of a lot of champagne.
1: Like winning another trophy.
0: huh? Yeah. Kind of like that. Yeah. So the next time I go to the UK, I'm going to be able to go through the, the line that says UK citizens. I'll have to leave my wife. i will say I'll see you on the other side. It may <laughs> be a while for you.
1: When were you last here?
0: 2018, we were there for yeah. Christmas time. Oh, that's right. We went to. Uh, we're looking at moving there, and we like Kent, so we went to Canterbury and stayed in Canterbury for a few days and explored Kent. Mm-hmm. So we saw the Christmas Mass in uh, Canterbury Cathedral. Archbishop of London was there, and man, what an experience! I've often felt like I'm I'm half and half <laughs> that I'm half British and half American, and being raised with English values and english humor and everything else especially the humor because my mom was very funny it felt like it definitely felt like home
1: you're not thinking about rooting from wine country are you to
0: the- well we're thinking about moving uh, getting a place to rent for a year and uh seeing what we think and get to know the countryside and where where we and see if in fact we would want to move you know the funny part is that uh, you know england The UK is always one of its lack of appeal is the weather and it's cold and it's foggy and it's, you know. Well, thanks to climate change, you guys are needing air conditioners now. So, you know, we can escape the insane heat there and go to what used to be normal for us here.
1: What do you consider your greatest achievement?
0: Oh, man. Marrying my lovely wife. Wow.
1: How long have you been married?
0: Uh, Ten years on the same day as the Partridge uh, uh, 50th really September 25th yes
1: it was meant to be
0: since the show ended really anytime I dated a girl I had to be careful it's like are they you know is it because I'm Chris Partridge or do they think I'm rich or whatever I always thought there was an ulterior motive so I meet Lisa and her uh, grandparents raised her and the grandparents just stated they were very restricted on what tv they could watch and it was you know things like gun smoke and all that and so she didn't really know much about the Partridge family. So she fell in love with me because of me. So I like that. In fact, she was the one that encouraged me to get the car back together and start racing again. Does she want to drive herself? She does, yes.
1: Ooh. Now, they say a man should never teach his wife how to drive, but...
0: Well, okay, funny you should mention that because I've been a <laughs> driving instructor. And we went to a driving school and she... I was her instructor, and the other instructor said, you realize that marriages end when this happens. And uh, I, you know, did my thing, and I'm, my teaching style is very patient, and I, you know, did what I, the, I didn't change my way, and she loved it, had a good time, and we're still married.
1: Going back, back to your racing, is there any particular cars that you would like to have raced that you never had the opportunity to?
0: Well, we have a series over here called Trans Am, and Trans Am is sort of like road racing stock cars, um, but they're two-frame. They're more sophisticated, but I generally like to drive cars that have more horsepower than chassis, and my experience is mostly the other way around. But to be able to uh, have enough power to actually steer out of the corner with the throttle is wonderful. So anything that's, you know, even NASCAR, I mean, if I had the opportunity that they they qualify for more horsepower than tire... I bet it's fun, but uh, yeah, any of the big formula, not for, the like the prototypes. Any of those would be fun, um, mm-hmm. but the prototypes are so between traction control and this, that, and the other thing, it takes the driver out of it. I, I like driving, so mm-hmm. something that has a lot of horsepower but not a lot of technology would be a lot of fun.
1: So, what is life like with you now?
0: Well, it's funny because for the longest time, I struggled with not being an employee you know, I was always working for a company, but, um, I finally got happy with just being an independent contractor. I mean, I, I have a sailboat that we run as a business. I have, um, real estate for a business. So I do a bunch of different things. I don't punch a clock, but I, you know, sometimes I'm working at two in the morning if I have to do research on some building or whatever. So, um, I'm doing a, a lot of different things. Um, actually, life is pretty good right now. So, so I tore my car down to a bare frame, and I've been rebuilding it. And I was hoping to have it ready for the first race in March. Now it's kind of funny because Howden Ganley, who was a Formula One driver in the early '70s, is one. He and Shent, Tim Schenken are the ones who started Tyga. Yes. Well, Howden Ganley lives here, and he's come by and he's looked at my car a few times and. The amazing part is, is after all these years, he can still, like he looked at the pedals once and goes, oh yeah, I made those because the other guy was sick that day or something. Yeah. In the waning days of my business, a friend of my clients came by with this car and said, I want to sell this. I'm going back to school. And I couldn't tell him that in three weeks I was shutting the doors and I just said, no, sorry, I'm not a buyer. So he goes away, comes back, well, how about this price? I said, no, I told you, I'm not a buyer. So he finally, he loads it up on the trailer and he makes me an offer. I'm like, all right, fine, I'll buy it. Because I could have parted it out and made money because it was pretty rough. So my mechanic and I said, you know, we got a race this weekend. Let's see if we'll give ourselves a goal. We can't spend more than $100 and we can't leave the shop to get it ready. Had to. We got a free part from somebody that was next door. So we did leave the shop, but I got running and had a ball ended up renting the car out a couple times. It's the only race car I've ever owned that actually made me money. So, you know, I've had some fun with it, but it's rough. And I finally just, I got all, you know, I had so much fun last year and meeting Howden and everything else. I thought, you know what, this will be a good winter project. Little did I know it was going to be a COVID project as well. I do, I do like the work. I mean, I'm having fun just optimizing everything and, you know, finding all the problems and correcting them and stuff. So, that's the engineer in me, I guess. Ultimately, I would have loved to either be a professional actor or a professional race car driver. The acting, I you know, I I've tried to dabble in it a few times, and every time I I'm just reminded of what a silly business it is and all the time and energy and money it takes to get into it, and maybe you'll get somewhere. And the escape The funny part is, is racing is similar to that too. Only you have to spend way more money to maybe get somewhere. Have
1: you ever had more job satisfaction from your acting or your racing?
0: Wow, you know, I never thought of that. You know, it's funny because my wife talks about when I'm racing, how animated I become and how happy I am. But then she said, I think you do the same thing in acting, but I think you're even more so with the acting uh, that's her opinion i don't know either, either one is is pretty good i'd say
1: you've left your mark in both
0: yeah i guess so i uh and hope and i'm not done yet
1: so of course you're not of course you're not
0: yes exactly
1: do you still think you have it within you to win a championship
0: oh yeah i'm i pretty confident saying that because those races last year when i was running up front well You know, one of the races I was coming down to the finish line and I was ahead and the guy went around and passed me and my wife said, told me afterward, why did you let off? I said, I didn't let off. The engine is that dead that that I couldn't do anymore. Well, now I've got a fresh rebuilt engine that they found cracked parts in and other problems. The chassis is going to be, I mean, the car. Uh, if I'm not running up front, I'll be, there's something wrong. <laughs> so.
1: Because you're, you're a perfectionist in everything that you do, be that making the wine, acting, racing.
0: You know, it's funny, as you're saying that, my wife is nodding her head. Perfectionist. Yes. Perfectionist. Yes. <laughs> so, um, You know, when I got back into the car last year, I, you know, I had done some track days, you know, had some fun solo events, but I hadn't raced in a while and I had some doubts, but after a couple races, I'm like, Nope, I still got it. I, I'm, I mm. you know, rusty. Yes. But the basics are still there.
1: It gives you that adrenaline rush. I guess if you're a singer, an actor in live theater, you need that feedback from your audience
0: yeah it's and, a drug no doubt about it
1: you could say that the partridge family sang about a love there is no cure for but sometimes wanting to be the best there's no cure for that and why should there be
0: right i like i like the uh, reference there little partridge family uh mm-hmm. there is no cure for ever. well done all right uh, <laughs> you know i i don't know if i didn't know or was reminded but that there was a lag time between the show here and what you had over there and that, but in the meantime, David had already, so the music got known first over there. um, And then the series, whereas here it was kind of simultaneous, but yeah, that makes a difference in how it's perceived.
1: What is your lasting memory of your days as young Chris and what the Partridge family has has meant to our generation?
0: Wow, that's a pretty, uh, Broad philosophical question. Um, I mean, the Partridge family. Just the fact that it's gotten this much interest after 50 years is, uh, you know, it's very exciting. It obviously had uh, so much to do with um, people's images and the culture, and I mean, it's very significant time. I mean, at the time, you know, first of all, I was very young, but secondly, you're just, you know, you're reporting to work. We're in a little studio. You know, we really don't know the impact, especially long term. So, you know, it's one thing to be, you know, one or two years out, but now 50 years out and we're still getting this. It's uh, it's impressive.
1: That just shows the longevity of it and how good it was
0: yeah i i agree you know when i do these autograph shows and i have you know when i first did them it was you know people our age coming up to me and talking but you know our age at that time being in their 40s but now they're coming by with their kids and their kids are watching it and they talk about how much it you know it influenced them and what a great time it was and and uh that's really satisfying for me to to know that you know i i was able to be a part of people's happy memories it's sobering to know that there's only four of us left um you know and we're all getting older and it's uh, a little sobering from that point of view but um i'm glad that we're uh, participating in in the, the 50th and all that so it's good
1: how sad did you feel when you learned of the deaths of Dave Madden Suzanne and and David
0: um Well, they were all sad in their own way. I mean, I was there for Dave Madden's memorial, which was held at the Magic Castle in Hollywood. And we it was this sounds weird, but the most fun funeral I've ever been to, because we all told stories. And, you know, so many of his friends were actors and comedians. And it was actually a wonderful experience. Mm -hmm. Um, Suzanne was just an absolute shock. I mean, for her to, you know, we'd been doing autograph shows, she's doing fine. And then bang, she's gone. It's like, how did that happen? Mm -hmm. Um, David was sad and David's was, I mean, the circumstances around it were just so sad. You know, a man that had just kind of been privately haunted all his life and trying to, you know, to live up to an ideal that was not possible. And um, it was very sad. You know, I just... uh, what, you know, his memorial was very touching, um, but again, just incredibly sad. Should Could have been different.
1: Yeah, but the happiness that the Partridge family and David's music brought to people of, of my age, um, it was like part of our childhood went that day as well because it was so big. It was such an impact at such a vulnerable age. And it was our first introduction to... Really good music.
0: Well, that's uh, very interesting as you're telling your experience about that. I mean, that term, "the end of the innocence." You know, the, there's a Don Henley song, "The End of the Innocence," and uh, that's kind of what I'm hearing from you. Mm. But uh, you know, with any kind of a grief situation, um, it's you know important to think about how important that person was, but to stay positive, you know, stay on the positive side and what the joy they brought you, and mm. and uh, remember yeah. them that way. I've heard the story about the kids who camped out on Shirley Jones's (laughs) lawn. They ran away from wherever they, because they didn't, their broken family and they thought we were a real family and wanted to Mm. join. And that's, that's a hard one too, but. It's uh,
1: it's tough. I suppose it's difficult to really grasp just how important the Partridge family home was. It was more more than just the music for many. Yes. There's the family I want to be a part of because I don't have one like that. Right and you know that's that's a powerful message to to take take with you
0: yep mm-hmm. well i guess that's why we're remembered after 50 years
1: it's been wonderful talking to you brian it, it's been fascinating
0: I appreciate the interview and i appreciate the time about something other than the Partridge family, so.
1: Well, I appreciate your time this evening. I wish you and your wife a very happy anniversary on the 25th.
0: Well, thank you very much. I didn't get married till I was 50. I was married to my career, so
1: Uh, I'm
0: glad to actually have a wonderful woman in my life. I'd love to be able to wake up one morning and go, so, what's today? And have her go, what? (laughs) Come on, you don't remember?
1: (laughs) Take care out there.
0: Yep, take care. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much.
0: All right, bye.
1: Well, that was just great. I hope you all enjoyed that conversation with Brian. And I'm sure many of you would have learned things about him that you didn't even know. From all of me to all of you, happy birthday on the 25th of September. Whatever you're doing to mark the half century, I hope you will have a wonderful time remembering the good times. You can find us on Apple.com. Google Play, Spotify, on any device, from any platform. I'll see you next week. Bye.